As Jeff mentioned, my research has shifted and narrowed a little bit since I wrote this proposal a couple years ago. And so I have a new proposed uh, title instead of Mountains and Minerals Protests on the Plains. So I'm keeping the alliteration, but we're actually in eastern Montana now and grassroots resistance in Montana. Just to get to know my audience a bit, how many people have heard of the Tongue River Railroad and the controversy? Great, so hopefully um, at the end we'll have a little bit of discussion where I can learn from you. I've just been working on this since uh, this past summer, so it's fairly new to me and I, I'm excited to have your insights. So after briefly sketching the resistance to the Tongue River Railroad in its various manifestations, um, I'd like to, as I mentioned before, come up with some preliminary conclusions and questions about what the story might be able to tell us about Montana history. And I just want to make a note that this is not a railroad history. It's a story of grassroots resistance in Montana. And another note that the Northern Cheyenne were key players throughout this entire movement, but the documentation I've looked at so far uh, focuses more on the white ranchers in southeastern Montana. And so that's what this presentation is mostly focused on, but I will be including the allyship with the Northern Cheyenne, and they were leaders in their own right as well. And just to orient where the story is, the Tongue River Valley is in southeastern Montana, for those not familiar, um, and it runs into Wyoming, the watershed does. The photo on the left is by Jeannie Alderson, who was, I believe, a third generation rancher in this valley, um, and she was a leader in this movement, as, was, as were her parents. And so, just to build a little bit of context of when this movement started, uh, the 1970s was a really, really a time of conflicting interests, and that's in the U.S. and Montana. So in the 70s, we had the oil crisis, um, and people in the U.S. started to worry about becoming reliant on other countries for our energy needs, and coal development seemed to be the most promising way to mitigate that. But at the same time, it's the boom of the environmental movement. And so in Montana, we have the 1972 Constitution, which promises twice a uh, right to a clean and healthful environment. So it's within this context of conflicting interests that this movement is really beginning. And so in 1971, um, Coal Strip had a meeting about the North Central Power Study. And this was a study conducted by the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, 21 private and public utility companies, electric cooperatives, public power districts, and cities. And essentially, this plan proposed 42 coal-burning power plants in the northern Great Plains, and 21 of them would be in Montana. So this map is from the study itself, and you can see... Oh, that's funny. You can't see my arrow. But if you... Where the proposed plants are in Montana is exactly in the Tongue River watershed. Um, so in addition to the location of these proposed plants, this plan included using 2.6 million acre feet of water annually from the Yellowstone, Bighorn, Wind, Tongue, Powder, and North Platte rivers to cool all those plants. Um, attending this meeting, were 
families, ranching families from Bernie, Bullhead Mountain, and Rosebud Creek. They were pretty concerned about the development of these plants um, in their ranch land, especially for the, the reason of water, and we'll get into other reasons later on. And there was talk at this meeting of calling this whole area in Montana and Wyoming a sacrifice zone for the nation. So this area we would sacrifice in order to power the country. The following year, the Northern Plains Resource Council, um, which will be abbreviated as NPRC and colloquially referred to often as Northern Plains, they formed from these families and other families in the valley. And this was, according to the oral histories from families that were founding members, this was pretty strange culturally for neighbors to talk to neighbors about um, concerns they were having politically. And so their main strategy though in the beginning was really just to get more information and then share it with their neighbors. So after the North Central Power study, uh, coal development in the Tongue River Valley specifically was touted as Montana's next big economic boom. And coal boosters lamented the fact that there was no uh, efficient transportation system to get the coal to market. So this idea to build a coal hauling railroad from Miles City to Ashland was born. And with it, of course, was the idea to develop these proposed mines from the study. And the main concerns from the ranching families, as well as the Northern Cheyenne, were water and eminent domain. So a lot of these families, including families in the Northern Cheyenne, they owned the land itself, like the surface of the land, but they don't own the minerals underneath it. And that, um, I'd love to hear, I'm sure there's some experts on eminent domain law, but uh, basically that, that came in the 19th century as a way to motivate railroad development westward. Um, so this map just shows Tongue River Railroad 1, its original form from Miles City um, all the way to Ashland. Again, you can't see my arrow, I keep forgetting that. So Miles City all the way to Ashland. It's just this uh, dark line here that parallels the Tongue River. The Northern Cheyenne Reservation is right here. And then there's a spur road here, a railroad here to go to Coal Strip. So that's 89 miles length in total for the first first plan of the Tongue River Railroad. And in 1980, work began on the first draft environmental impact statement for this particular railroad. And at the same time, the rhetoric already starts to shift of where the coal is going. So at first, the argument is we need to be self-sufficient energy-wise. This coal will go over to the Great Lakes to be processed and will fuel our country. But already in 1980, there's talk of shipping this overseas to Japan, um, Taiwan, and Korea. And so this, I just thought, was an interesting clip from the Billings Gazette, where Molly McRae, a coal strip rancher, um, sort of says, like, I'm confused on what you're telling me my responsibility is. And at the bottom, it just says, now suddenly we have an international responsibility. It seems to me that my responsibility to the people is to make sure they have enough food, which is more of a basic energy requirement than every increasing use of energy by both domestic and foreign energy users. Um, okay. So by 1982, Northern Plains already has 
a small staff, and they organized to file extensive comments on this first draft EIS for um, the railroad and the proposed Monco mine, which would have been between Ashland and Bernie. And they take and deliver these comments to Washington, D.C. to oppose the Tongue River Railroad's application uh, for certificate of public convenience and necessity. So I thought it might be fun to have sort of an interactive activity where we'll just look at three of those comments. Um, I, I clipped them, like little chunks of it from the letter, and I'll read because obviously. Uh, so this one is Sophie Olson. She had a ranch within the Tongue River Valley. And as I read through these three examples, just think of any maybe themes or patterns you're noticing with the concerns from the ranchers. So, um, so she first references inaccurate and outdated statistics on irrigation. And then she says, where do they plan to get their water to build the road and railroad? They say they'll keep it watered down to minimize the dust pollution, but where do they get the water to keep the road and railroad watered down during construction? If this past summer is any indication, the rainfall shirt won't take care of it. This next one by Boyd and Margaret Bloom. Um, I'm just gonna read little clips from it, but we are within the Tongue and Yellowstone Irrigation District and depend on the water from the Tongue River to irrigate our crops. This irrigation district, which supplies water for both the Tongue and Yellowstone Valleys, has been in existence for nearly 100 years. Water is such a precious resource here in the West. If the water in this river should become so polluted, it would destroy these highly productive valleys. Agriculture has been the lifeblood of this part of the state of Montana. We dare not let this application for the building of this railroad and the opening of these mines be approved without first investigating and having answered positively those questions regarding the availability and usability of this water. And in this final example by Patty Kluver, she accuses the, U uh, the EIS to have an agenda. So she was saying this report is not a neutral party looking at the, um, the environmental impact of this railroad but they were actually proponents of building the railroad. And she pointed to the role coal played in filtering water. And she, at the underlined portion, she's quoting the EIS and it says, some residents speculate that aquifers disturbed by mining will be permanently depleted or destroyed. And that increased erosion and accidental discharge of water, um, of wastewaters will diminish water quality to the point that it is unsuitable for use. And her response underneath is, it's no speculation. Um, we know that the railroad constructed with the sole purpose of hauling coal will ultimately lead to the opening of coal strip mines. And finally, to the further degradation and destruction of the ground and surface water in this semi-arid agricultural region. Um, can I get to okay. So the themes I kind of picked out of these and other comments were water and then this highly aware um, observant way the ranchers knew the land from being there for generations and we'll get to that in a question toward the end but despite these comments in 1985 this first rendition of the tongue river railroad was indeed awarded the certificate of public convenience and necessity 
Northern Plains appealed and they want a postponement of the decision. So you'll see that as a pattern throughout the resistance is it's kind of delaying the construction but never permanently closing it. And so briefly running through the second um, rendition of the railroad and that happened throughout the 1990s. So this decade was um, a pretty difficult decade for the resistance movement and then a, a positive decade for those who were in favor of constructing this railroad. And the, essentially the difference here is the railroad proponents requested an extension all the way down to Deckers to service Wyoming coal. Um, and still the original part is the same, but this time instead of stopping here, it's going past the reservation all the way to Wyoming. And so this would have extended the length from 89 miles to 131 miles. And within this Tongue River Railroad 2, there's a lot more discussion of eminent domain and right of way. And so this is just a, like an educational material, an example of how Northern Plains organized, and they're talking about property owner rights. Um, and at the time, Senator Burns and Congressman Hill were both really in favor of the railroad. And so they were, of course, encouraging landowners to contact their representatives and let them know that they lived there and were against the railroad. So this kind of is just a snapshot timeline of the decade. And I bolded the fun fact of this presentation is um, in 1994, the Montco mine is that mine between Ashland and Bernie. They applied for a state renewal of its permit because they hadn't begun construction yet. And the renewal was denied. This is the only time in Montana history that a coal permit was canceled. Um, so it was a glimmer of hope for the movement. But in 96, the New World Gold Mine was about to be built at the headwaters that go into Yellowstone National Park. Um, and the Clinton administration actually stepped in and canceled the mine. Um, to protect Yellowstone National Park, but in exchange, they granted Montana more mineral rights. So this kind of brings up the question of how historically, what do we value in land versus like what is a sacrifice zone? Um, the 90s is also, in the documentation I looked at, where you start seeing strong alliance between Northern Plains and the Northern Cheyenne tribe and a few examples of that is they together persuaded the Montana Supreme Court to uphold the state's denial of the Monco mine permit. Um, they flew to D.C. on lobbying trips to protect the Tongue River Valley and encouraged the Surface Transportation <coughs> Board to deny uh, the Tongue River Railroad's request for an accelerated environmental impact statement process. Um, and then, despite these efforts, in 1998, landowners began to receive 30-day notices that the company was coming to enter their land. And so, Northern Plains organized a landowner survey to get a sense of what property owners already had the company come, which hadn't, what information did they know about the railroad, what didn't they know, and so this is just a map from Northern Plains archives that sort of lays out, here's the different ranch families that we want to talk to within the survey. And then we also have a few examples 
of from the survey. Um, and this one just talks about how they've been battling for 20 years. It says, we were given maps in the early 80s of where it would go. Then in the fall of 97, they showed up with one line drawn on a photocopy of the land where the new railroad went and wanted us to give them entrance to the property. This comment says, I believe the Tongue River Railroad, if built, would be environmentally bad for water quality in the Tongue River. This, of course, would have negative impact on our crop yields and on wildlife carrying capacity of the area in general. The Tongue River Railroad, if built, would come close to our ranch. It would cause a decline in property value and quality of our lives. And then this is just an example of more questions on the survey. Does the railroad cr cross your property? Yes. Um, and then why are you for or against it? Every survey I saw, they were against it. Um, and a lot of them cited similar things, so it kind of shows the, the success of the movement in sharing information. And this is my favorite slide of the presentation. Uh, working title for my dissertation, Janet. Uh, <laughs> um, so kind of wrapping up this story, I just wanted to also highlight uh, in addition to exchanging information, neighbors talking to neighbors, Northern Plains grew throughout these decades. And this is just selected legal and political actions taken by uh, Northern Plains and allies. And they got pretty creative. They, again, referred to the state constitution in a battle in the court. Um, and I believe 2012, they worked with the Northern Cheyenne to try to talk about uh, historic preservation and what sites might be impacted by this road. Um, and to wrap this up really quickly to get to kind of the broader discussion points. Um, in 2007, Northern, or the Tongue River Railroad had still done nothing to build the railroad. No shovel was put to dirt at this point. And they filed a third route um, known as the Western Alignment. In 2012, they filed it a fourth route, and that idea was strictly to ship coal overseas. And in this context, the demand for coal is declining, um, energy needs are changing, so there's a lot of shifting in investors. Um, Arch Coal took over the project, and they partnered with Burlington Northern, and then um, second fun fact of the presentation, Forest Mars, the Mars candy bar, guy. He uh, also was an investor in this, this fourth um, version of the railroad because, anyone want to guess why? He owned property in the valley and he didn't want the railroad going through his own property, so he decided to invest in the project to, to have a say in that. However, in 2016, um, because of Delay, lack of investors and delay in construction, the Tongue River Railroad was denied its permit to build. And so for now, it rests in peace. Um, and so some, some preliminary conclusions to this. Again, this is really new research to me, so I'm really looking forward to the discussion at the end. And I just wanted to kind of bring up some questions I have and some, some themes I'm starting to notice in the research. So the first one is how should we define environmentalist and conservationist, and who historically have been those people, the most effective conservationist environmentalists in Montana, and we could extend that to the US and world. Um, 
Another one, that, so this is future research, the role of women as leaders in these movements. So um, as Dr. Bardis mentioned, my research was really focused on El Salvador before I started looking at this Montana case study. And in both cases, there is a strong women leadership within these movements. So that's something I think would be interesting to look at further. And of course, as I mentioned in the beginning, I need a more in-depth analysis of the Northern Cheyenne resistance to coal development because it's a little bit different story. Um, they, the economy on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation is also small-scale ranching and logging, um, but it's a little bit different than on the, the white rancher side of the river, where is it competing industries or is it true conservationism? I don't know, and so I think there's a lot to unpack there. And there's also an interesting solidarity question between tribes with the Pacific Northwest. Um, as the railroad was looking to go out that direction, the Lumi tribe and others started to join the resistance in solidarity with Northern Cheyenne and Northern Plains. Um, another question, what can this story tell us about shifts in resource demand in the mid to late 20th century? Again, it seems like the success strategy of Northern Plains was to keep delaying construction until coal was no longer um, booming as it was in the 1970s when this first railroad idea started. And then finally, for my broader research, I'm interested in how new oral history methodologies might further reveal the role of the non-human environment as a historical actor. And so I began this research a little bit in El Salvador, um, hosting community-based oral history and public history workshops. Um, and I hope to replicate that in Montana. And of course, we're in strange times, so we'll see how that develops. But um, yeah, I, I, I would like your thoughts on that as well. And I just wanted to thank um, these different organizations for helping my research so far. And thank you all. Thank <laughs> you.